On today's episode of Complicated Conversations, we are thrilled to be joined by Victoria V.E. Schwab, the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books, including the acclaimed novel, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, the Shades of Magic series, Villains series, and the Monsters of Verity duology. Her work has received critical acclaim, been featured in the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, The Washington Post, and more, been translated into more than a dozen languages, and been optioned for television and film. The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue stayed on the bestseller list for 43 weeks after its original publication in 2020, and in only one year sold over 1 million copies worldwide, and obviously continues to sell. It is now out in paperback. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to talk about this book. Clearly, lots of people have read it, but <laughs> if for those who, who may not have, can you give us just the elevator pitch? Of course. The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is the story of a young woman who wants to escape the life that she's in and so accidentally makes a deal with the devil to live forever and ends up cursed to be forgotten by everyone she meets. It's the story of her relationship with that devil over 300 years and her relationship with one boy in New York City over a single year after he remembers her name. Do you feel like you could recite that in your sleep at this point? Well... <laughs> That was beautiful, by the way. <laughs> For a while I could, but it's so surreal being an author because you're promoting things that have already come out, yes. working on things that haven't come out yet. Mm -hmm. And so for when Addie was just coming out in hardcover, yes, I had it dead to rights. I could do the whole thing. <laughs> but then I had another standalone novel come out, and then I have a return to my fantasy series. And so now it feels like a little bit like missing a step. Yes. Like I have this little moment, this lurch of panic. Am I going to forget how to talk about this? But I just did the UK paperback tour and I discovered quite quickly that, oh, this is a story that has muscle memory is just well yeah. into me. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then it all comes back to you. Exactly. Well, usually we interview authors when a novel of theirs is coming out. For the very first time, we love to also focus on debut novelists who have no idea how their work will be received in the world. You couldn't be more opposite from that. And I wondered if it's obviously, as Kate described, has had exceptional success, reception from critics and, and readers alike. How does it feel to you now? And, and you've also had a lot of life for yourself, right? You're talking about yeah. other books and, and all of us have gone through the pandemic. And how does it feel to know this is your book? Is of it course, yeah. getting farther away from you? Is that a good thing? I think distance for writers is a good thing just because when we're in the thick of it, it can feel so emotionally fraught. A novel with like Addie LaRue was especially contentious for me emotionally because it took nearly a decade to write. Mm -hmm. So obviously I wasn't sitting around not writing during that time, but it was steeping in the background. I do just want to say though, I think it's funny, even though I'm very much not a debut. Addie was my 20th novel. It was very much a departure for me. Yeah. Yes. So most of my work is fantasy. Most of my work is pretty hard genre. And I certainly, the, I, was, I thought it was going to be a death knell for my career yeah. to, to not write in my usual lane. On top of that, I have this incredible fan base, but I, I, they do tend to take a while. So my books 
are very rarely immediate successes. Right. Mm -hmm. They tend to instead sell the same number of copy year over year and accrue kind of a cult fandom. Yeah. So I went into Addie LaRue at my most optimistic thinking. Hoping that would happen. Five to 10 years. Yeah. It'll take yeah. five to 10 years for readers to find Addie. And so what was astonishing about this book is not that it found readers, but that it found them so quickly. That is a thing I was deeply unprepared for in every sense of it. But it was happening at a time where, to be frank, I don't think anyone was prepared for anything. It came out in October right. 2020. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The yeah. timing really. I mean, so we we love as readers and, and podcast hosts and writers ourselves to when a book is that successful, we love to kind of talk about like, why? What, what do you of think course. like the special sauce is? And of course, we joke, oh. if we knew this, you know, yeah, we'd all be publishing bestsellers day in and day out. Clearly, there is no sure. actual way to answer that question. But but it does seem But you clear. must have some thoughts. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. I'm, I'm Machiavellian enough that I do think yeah. about metrics. I do like, I was supposed to be an astrophysicist. So what that means, I am obviously mm. not. I am a novelist, <laughs> but I am very, very data driven. Yeah. I love data. And I think in order to have as many books out as I do and to still be publishing, you have to have a little bit of an interest in how the sausage gets made and how yeah. the business yeah. works. And so I think there's two reasons that Addie did well one small one in my control and one very large one out of my mm -hmm. control. The small one in my control is that I am fortunate enough to have what I call an author fan base instead of a series fan base. Most mm. novelists who write in one space or one world, like think of Cassie Clare. I think she has like 20 novels all within one world. Mm -hmm. When that happens, your fan base is tethered to a specific context of story and not you. Mm -hmm. I have made it a bit of a point of my entire career to never tell the same story twice, to never play in my same field once I make it. And I think what that has forced my readership to be is very adaptable yeah. very willing to take chances on anything that I write. So what happened was for about six years before Addie LaRue hit shelves, every time I went on book tour, anywhere in the world for any of my books, I teased this novel. Ah, and I think fantastic. what happened was yes. this sense of investiture where my readers felt not only a sense of anticipation, but they knew exactly what I was going to mention before I mentioned it. Like they were primed. Yes. So, but that only accounts for, let's right. say, a quarter of a million people, right? Yeah. Right. Addie has so far to date, I think, sold two million copies in America. Oh, so, I was like, ask if you have the up to date numbers. Yes. I'm so glad yeah, you said that. Yeah, probably about about three million worldwide wow. right now. And so, obviously, there's a large uncounted for factor. And I think, to be very honest. That's a combination of the publisher effort, but also that's weird. It's so weird to say that that's where the pandemic comes in. And I, that's where mm -hmm. book talk comes in. And that's where this, this kind of perfect storm of a story about hope and loneliness yeah. and living in an eternal present hits at a time when we're all lonely and feeling yeah. hopeless and trapped in an eternal present yes. at a time when book talk really emerges and begins championing stories that hit them in the feelings that yeah. really punch them with with emotion yeah. and so i think that's that's i think the pieces that i can account for yeah and and also october which was not early pandemic yeah. when we were you know confused and thinking maybe things will open up in two weeks and october we were really settled in and not so scared, but still isolated and lonely yes. and needing a story like this. It was a yeah. hibernation window almost, or mm, like a sense of yes. like forced stasis. 
I also think it's a time when, because we were realizing that this wasn't going to have a fast resolution, that loneliness really hit where everyone realized that they didn't know when it was going to end. And the weird thing is that Addie's whole deal is that like, you can only handle today. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You're hope. right. And winter was coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to talk more about Addie and also something that you mentioned before that she had been with you for 10 years. You were 23 when you met Addie. Yeah. And I read your beautiful story about this. You were on a hike in the suburbs of Liverpool. You were really kind of going there, asking yourself deep questions about mm-hmm. life and pushing through something when you were preparing to write just your second novel at the time. Yes. And at the top of the hike that you wrote that you were suddenly immeasurably tired, a bone deep weariness that made you want to lie down. And then you wrote that fatigue became as integral to Addie as her joy, a warring counterpoint, hope always winning out, but the desire to surrender, to rest like a weight always there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, that <laughs> is so beautiful, but also I can feel it physically. And then also the words are so beautiful and lyrical. Tell us how you developed Addie over nearly a decade, obviously, while you wrote and published many other books. And what do you think was your greatest obstacle to writing about her that needed that time? I mean, I certainly was the greatest obstacle. I think the problem with Mm -hmm. being a perfectionist is at some point when a story sits with you for too long, you realize you become so tethered to the perfect idea Mm -hmm. that that is really at odds with the idea of an imperfect reality. So, but I'll I'll get to that with Addie. What's so interesting is, and this is really an argument for patience. Some stories, I've written stories in three months. I've written stories in three years. Obviously, Addie so far holds the record for me at about 10. It's like nine and a half, but I reserve the right to round up because of how long that was. (laughs) But it's interesting. I'm so glad that her hope became the louder thing. Because in the beginning, it really was that ennui and that fatigue. And it's a fatigue that is really central to most immortality tales. But one of the reasons that I wanted to position Addie differently, that it would take me several years to figure out that I wanted to position Addie differently, is that Addie has the ability to make it stop. Yes. And if Addie truly is that tired, if she is that world weary, what has stopped her from hitting the off button, right? Because that's all Luke is waiting for, is for her to just basically put up the white flag and he'll sweep it. So that fatigue and that ennui is, of course, present. But it's really antithetical to what keeps her going. And so in the beginning, when I first imagined Addie, I did really imagine this overwhelming weariness, much more in keeping with classic Faustian tales. And then I realized what sets Addie apart is that she isn't that. She has moments of that, but really what defines Addie is this defiant hope and stubborn joy. And like that is what puts her at odds really with every one of Luke's past deals is that he can't really fathom but she just wants to live a good life mm-hmm. without the ego of it. And of course, she probably would have gone on to be a famous artist. She would have gone on to do myriad things if she hadn't had the curse, if she hadn't had the restrictions. But at the end of the day, Abby truly just wants a good life. Mm-hmm. And so I had to figure that out about her character. And that took probably three to four years to understand that Abby was almost in opposition to these classic Faustian men mm-hmm. who make these deals. As far as why it took the 10 years, though, truly, it took about five or six years to get the plot. And I'm somebody who has to have the ending and some key moments of the plot before I can fathom writing something down. I really am like a, I'm an intense planner in that way. I usually, by the time I started drafting Addie LaRue, I had almost all 300 scenes outlined. 
Like I wow. knew I had a roadmap for myself, mostly because it's a braided narrative that's jumping between this timeline over 300 years and this timeline over 12 months. But I just, I got in my own way. Once I was ready, I probably was, I had all the pieces I needed about six years in. And then I just got scared. Mm-hmm. I just got scared of messing it up. And I, I became so indebted to this, what I thought was kind of like the perfect story. And it's of course not perfect, but in my mind, it was already there. It was whole, it was formed. And I got so afraid. <laughs> the metaphor that I often use is that you have an idea. It's in your head. It's it's just pure potential. It's pure light. And the act of writing it down is like taking this beautiful orb of light and smashing it against the ground. Yeah. And the act of revision is trying to cobble it back together again into something that glows. And I was just really afraid of the process of smashing it. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid I would never get back. And to this day, it is of all t- now 21, 22 books, it's the one I feel got closest to the light again, but it was not. The first draft of it was so far from it, and the act of getting it down was really not a – it wasn't a pleasant drafting process. It wasn't an enjoyable drafting process. It was a lot of people standing around me kind of prying the delete key off of my laptop every time I got overwhelmed by it. Mm. I just couldn't get out of my own way. And then, weirdly, I was Henry's age, so I was 29 turning 30, when I started to realize that I had this crossroads when I needed to make the choice if I was either just going to let it be a perfect idea or if I was going to work to make it an imperfect reality. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I would rather have something real and imperfect. But it was like, it was a very hard conversation with myself about it could have just lived in my mind and I could have just kept it there. Mm -hmm. It's the most beautiful answer I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. My thank you you really could have left it there because you were writing other books and you were, it wasn't that you were, you know, stuck. It was just stuck in this part. of. I wasn't breaching contract. It wasn't like, I'm so glad in some ways. I mean, I do envy the the Aaron Morgensterns and the Madeline Millers and the Donna Tarts who get to write like a book a decade. I really envy them. Don't get me wrong. But I'm also very grateful that I'm not them because I think if I had that much weight on every single thing that I wrote, I I truly wouldn't be able to do it. And you're right. One of the things that was both freeing and enabling is that even though people were expecting Addie, because I had mentioned it, I had whispered her into the world, I didn't owe her to anyone. Mm -hmm. I could have just put it off indefinitely. Yeah, Yeah. sure. We're going to come back to astrology later, but that sounds like some Saturn's return stuff going on. I do, because it's that time in your life as well. Exactly. Uh, It's the right timing. Yeah. Okay, well, so a little more about Addie, though. So we've talked about her curse is that she's forgotten by everyone who meets her. So the question in the novel is, what would it be like to move through a world where you're forgotten and you can't leave a mark? And there's this the famous line, I think there are now bookmarks that say, what is a person <laughs> if not the marks they leave behind? But Addie is a muse. And I want to talk about that. You know, she says that ideas are wilder than memories. And she encounters all these creative geniuses in these 300 years that she travels and many of whom don't always remember, all of whom really don't remember the sources Mm -hmm. of their ideas. So they, of course, attribute it to themselves as all geniuses do. But we know. Yeah. And in this case, the inspiration, whether it's, you know, the thing that helps them leave their indelible mark, whether it be their painting or their music or, or their sculpture is really Addie. So she does leave a mark. And I love that. And so, 
you know, all creators are inspired in part by something or someone else. And here it's Addie. So why did you want to make her a muse? Well, I think, so as I said, I, I'm a planner. I don't hold a huge amount of space for like the wishy-washiness of creativity just because mm. I'm too anxious as a person. Mm. I have to be in control. When I'm working, I like to think of myself as the small god of that world. Like people will be like, what do you do when a character surprises you or goes off book? And to me, I feel like that's a failing on my part. Mm. The character has surprised me, then we're not on the same page. That's not a good thing. It's not a nice surprise. Part of this because I write my novels in reverse from the ending backwards. So I like find the finished form of my characters and then I rewind them to figure out who they need to be when we first meet them in order to walk them to that journey. So I don't really love when characters deviate. (laughs) It means it's something I've done wrong. That is all to say that even all of that, even knowing exactly how I create books, even having this tried and true process, there is still a moment when the ingredient becomes the meal Mm -hmm. and I can't account for it. Mm -hmm. I cannot pinpoint the second that the ideas coalesce. I can't pinpoint that crucial, critical mass that an idea has to hit to become story. It could be that I passed Addie on that hillside and she told me something and I forgot her and I remembered the idea. I just, there's always a piece of it. The strangest thing is that I'm working on my next standalone novel now and I for so long described that digging this story for Addie kind of felt like an empty grave was left in its wake. Like there was just this plot in my head that would never Mm. be full again. And then something started to grow up through the bottom of it. And now I'm starting to wonder this new idea that I have, did I plant that before I ever dug Addie? Mm. Like, cause it's below where Addie was. I have no memory of this, but it's fully formed. So I have, I'm on like, always considering the role of inspiration to art, of course. We're guided in some way by it. The most unsettling story, of course, that I've ever heard about it is the famous Elizabeth Gilbert story. Yes, I was going to say big yeah. magic. I, yeah. That story gives me actual palpitations. That story yes. gives me such anxiety. The idea that if you ignore an idea for long enough, it simply chooses someone else yeah. is heinous to me. <laughs> yeah, but agreed. I always think about that a lot. And I, I love art. My master's degree is in art history. And I'm always really fascinated by influence and especially by this difference between object and creator. Mm -hmm. And for Addie, she was never going to be the artist, but that doesn't mean she can't be the art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, it really gets into the like the theory of art, but the subjectivity versus objectivity. My best friend is a photographer and we have many conversations about how photography is still a lie what we include in a frame and how we light it is still part of negation and what we exclude from the flame. We're still, there's this illusion of veracity, but for Addie specifically, it's about subjective interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's about Addie can only be permanently rendered through someone else's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. As is truth. I mean, people love to, to want truth but it's it's so slim what mm-hmm. truth could could even possibly be yeah, exactly we were just all interpreted we're yeah. all like we, we exist to each other like i i just go through the world i remember learning when i was about 10 years old that like none of us saw a color the exact same way oh. like our like we don't see there's no objective truth to how we perceive the world my father isn't colorblind, but he has really limited blue green perception. Mm. And he'll look my at my husband like, has he, red green. Yeah, yeah. He'll look at like 
eight shades of blue. They all look identical to him. He can't tell what they are. And I am, I'm just, I'm horrified. Right. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, even how yeah. her story can't be written down until exactly. Henry has to be the one that writes down her and story. And that's the, you know, to get very like technical, that's why the story from I, my background is in poetry from a writing perspective. And that's why there's a lot of linguistic looping mm -hmm. in this book where we kind of almost have repetition <laughs> of phrase because it's meant to have that oral semblance yeah. of when you're trying to remember something, mm -hmm. uh, you tell yourself, I used to plot stories I was a distance swimmer and I used to plot stories facing that line on the swimming pool floor. Mm -hmm. And the only way I would be able to hold on to ideas until I got back out was to tell them to myself over and over mm -hmm. and over again. Wow. So that by the time I got out an hour later, I still had it. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to imagine Henry not always having pen in hand and trying to just remember the things that Addie's telling him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Whew. Well, I, yeah, I don't, I want to talk about Addie's relationship with Luke, the darkness yes, who she made her deal with. It's complicated to say the least. We wanted to know how you would describe it. Toxic. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. Luke is like, Luke is a toxic ex-boyfriend. I specifically <laughs> wanted to do this because, so Luke is a god with a lowercase g. And one of the things I love about polytheism and pantheons is that when you have one god in a monotheistic religion, that god has to be infallible. That's the nature of a monotheism. And so in pantheons, though, and in polytheism, these gods so much more closely resemble the humanity that worships them that they get to be not only flawed, but they often represent the worst of us as well as the strongest. And so I started to conceive of Luke instead of our Milton-esque devil, instead of a proper Lucifer, I thought this is a petulant child. Yeah. Like this is a, you know, gods, especially those lowercase g gods in like the Norse and Greco-Roman pantheons, they would almost always be really immature because they became almost static. They don't mature the way that humanity matures. So I envision Luke as almost in this stasis, this kind of teenage boy, arrogant, <laughs> mm -hmm. like only child energy, very covetous, very jealous, very temperamental. And then the thing about meeting Addie is that over the course of their 300 years together, he arguably becomes much more human and she becomes much less human. And you can look at it from either direction that he's starting to enjoy this, this kind of play that he's engaging in. Whereas the only time that he manifests as Luke, as this person who looks this way is to Addie. And essentially every time he sees her, he gets to step in and play at being human for a little while. Yeah. Meanwhile, the curse that he's put on her is enforcing her to be less and less human because she's isolated for longer and longer from humanity. So they're in this extraordinarily toxic dance, but it is molded on a toxic relationship from animosity through attraction and and past love into animosity again, into exes. So I love, I love a toxic ex, but people <laughs> ask me, you know, ask me if Addie LaRue is a love story. And I feel very strongly that it's not. Mm -hmm. I feel like Addie and Luke have infatuation and lust yeah. and Addie and Henry have intimacy. But neither one of them, I would argue, is a proper love story. Henry can mm. never know Addie well enough for it to be a proper love story. They, mm. are, they are ships in the night. It's a mm. year in his life, but it's a year in her 300. Yeah. And I mm. kind of feel like she's getting something out of her system. And I think what they have is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I love Henry. Henry is the closest to an autobiographical character I've ever gotten. Oh, wow. I love Henry. But I think they have a tryst. 
I think they have a beautiful season. Yes. And I think that she and Luke have something so much more complicated than love. And I would argue that through, not that it's Luke's fault, but as Addie says, he doesn't know what love is. He He conflates love and possession because it's the closest thing he can figure out. Mm. Oh, Oh, that is, and I love that you said that Henry is the closest thing to an autobiographical (laughs) character. And I loved him too. And I, I love that, you know, the way their curses sort of interact, you know, and, you know, it isn't until she meets him. I mean, that I remember, you know, I remember you. I, I, I can't, the chills that I got when that, when that line. And now that I heard you're a poet, and it does loop through. But so he is also cursed for you know wanting love and acceptance on his own terms, and, and he's able to to see himself in her. And to me, they weren't cursed. Together, they somehow are seen, which I thought was yeah. so beautiful and interesting and he's kind and empathetic his heart literally feels too much i mean it's that is that how you feel now that i've heard this i wanted to ask about their curses working together but i really want to hear about your how you relate to henry henry is the only way i know how to put this henry is who i would have been at 29 if i had never found writing Hmm. like writing i it's like our paths diverge around 20 but I possessed everything he possessed, this kind of paralytic fear of making a choice because it meant unchoosing other lives. Mm-hmm. I used to be convinced, part of me probably still is, but I used to be convinced when I was a teenager that every time I made a choice, a parallel version of me made a different one and that I could kind of almost sometimes glimpse the other versions of me living other lives. Oh, yeah. And like when I made decision, you know, not to go into physics, when I made these decisions not to go to grad school for specific things, when I made decision to write, but like I had these and I made these choices and I watched the other versions of myself disappear. So I gave Henry that as well, but Henry just didn't find writing. He didn't mm-hmm. have the outlet that I had mm-hmm. that was truly a life-saving outlet. I, I don't know where I would be without it. I gave him all of my mental health stuff. I gave him my storms. That's like the metaphor that I use to talk about whenever I talk with people about mental health, this idea that, you know, a depressive episode or a panic attack can be so, so bad. But the lie that our mind tells our body is that however bad it is, it will only get worse. Mm -hmm. And the thing about storms is, of course, they can be horrific and violent. But if you batten down the hatches, the thing is that they necessarily by definition pass. Yeah. Like weather systems don't stall, they they move. And so I gave Henry all these little pieces of me, all my fragilities, and I didn't give him my outlet. I didn't give him my my rope. And so I think that's how you get to the worst night of Henry's life. And I think that's such a hard thing for people to understand. Oh, how could you do this deal for a year? And it's like, but from where Henry's standing, like he would have done it for a day. Mm -hmm. Like when you think you're at the end. You just make poor choices. And so I think it's super interesting that Addie and Henry are different answers to the exact same question, which is what do you do when you feel like your life isn't enough? Mm -hmm. You know? But yeah, he's my, he's, he's to this day, the only character I'm like, uh, privately, of course, but quite protective over. Mm. And whenever people say they don't like him, I take it like very, I don't let them know that I take it personally, but I think part of me takes it very personally. (laughs) So I want to ask you along those lines, you've written so many types of books across genres, characters, prolific writers, you've talked about 21, 22 books already. Mm -hmm. 
but they're still distinctly you. Is there something, what makes them you? Is there something that you feel like you're wrestling with, a through line, a question that you're always, even if it's a different genre or a different format, mm-hmm. and I feel like you're nodding, I, so I want to know, tell the me. The Venn yeah. diagram. Where yeah, I was going to say somebody books. asked me this a couple of years ago, and I looked back and I realized there's one point of overlap in all my Venn diagrams, like all the circles, and it's going to sound really weird when I say it, but I'll walk through it, which is, it's death. But it's specifically death as a two-way street. I I grew up with a sick parent and, and I'm an only child. So basically I grew up with a God complex because I became convinced that if I tried hard enough, if I paid enough attention, I could keep my father alive. He's a type 1 diabetic and he's he's very well. He's still with us, but growing up it was precarious. And because of this, I had this absolute terror of mortality. I just... I couldn't bear it. And the the stories I began to write were all stories in which death didn't mean an end. And so some stories that looks like immortality stories, like Addie, it's about the continuous prolonging of life. I wrote a story called The Archived, which was literally about a library where the dead are shelved like books, because the thing that scared me most as a teenager was this idea that it, you could live an entire life and accrue so much knowledge and so many memories, and it could just go away. I just wanted to know it would be kept safe, right? I wrote stories where people died and came back to life, like the villains. I wrote stories where magic could hold people in the living world. I, Every one of my stories in some way is a defiance of death, whether it's, it's turning death into a door or a threshold, whether it's negating it entirely, whether it's giving somebody power over death. Death as um, a two-way street. Yeah. Wow. Death as a two-way street. Wow. Wow. Uh, transformation, of course, yeah. as is necessary, but like that's the death card in tarot, isn't it? Yeah, I was just, I was just gonna yeah. say, I was just gonna say it's that too. Yes, that don't fear just, that card because yeah. it is not the worst card you can get. Yeah. It is transformation, and and to Re- to have rebirth, rebirth you exactly. must have death. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so you've talked about how writing really—it—it it, it sounds like it's something that was like a lifeline for you, and yes. it was—it it seems like necessary for you to do to exist almost. But that you're also concerned with metrics and how mm-hmm. things are, you know, and and how is it going to be received and the the success yeah. of that. So Nightmare. I want to talk about yeah. I, well, I want to talk about ambition. I mean, sure. I, I I joked like if you were a Harry Potter house, I think you'd be Slytherin. Yes, I mean, they're right. known for being. <laughs> ambitious and cunning and resourceful yes all things we enjoy as well or are proud to be ambitious but what is your relationship with ambition yeah kate and i are but it's not always so yes received well by the outside world especially in women i was gonna say as a woman you're taught to be selfless like as a woman Mm -hmm. this is my big issue is i write my my female characters and my femme presenting characters to have ambition and i write them the way that most people write their male Mm anti-heroes and then i gender swap them to see what people will do i did this with delilah bard who is one of the the female hero of the shades of magic series and people hated her Mm -hmm. because she was ambitious and she was cunning and she had desires that she wanted and she put herself first and how dare and I watched this go on it's most of my things are written in reaction to things and I got so annoyed that like when women were in um, a main character role in fantasy in genre which is what I write when they're given power they're automatically expected to sacrifice it and themselves for the greater good Mm -hmm. and I 
I just call uh, yeah. bullshit on this. So yeah. like when I was a teenager, I would have burned the world down to be happy. I just don't buy it. And as an yeah. adult, we're like, we're shamed as women for having ambition. We're shamed for wanting, you know, I have a very complicated relationship to creativity and anyone who follows me online knows that because I'm very transparent about the fact that I love and need writing. I struggle with publishing. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to have your value. It's very hard to not have your work and your self-worth become directly intertwined. And I, you know, writing in the beginning was just this thing I needed and loved. It was my outlet. It gets a little harder with every single book. It gets a little bit more of a devil's bargain yeah. with every single book. And because wow. I'm the kind of person who will talk myself out of it, no matter, I turn mentally in a way that I hope is not ungrateful because I try not to put it outward. But personally, I will turn every success into an imminent failure. Mm. When Addy began to succeed so well, I thought, but I don't have any other books like Addy. Okay. So nobody will want to read me again. Like when I, you know, no matter what the success, when Addie did so well in hardcover, my brain said, oh, it's not going to do well enough in paperback. Like my brain just yeah. is a, is a, there's subterfuge at work, yeah. right? It's a saboteur. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying so hard, and this is the Elizabeth Gilbert of it all, right? <laughs> at some point when you have a book that success defies your normal metrics, you have to accept that you'll probably never have another if you do, it'll just be lightning striking twice and you can be grateful. But how do you make peace with that, right? It can either paralyze you or you can be liberated by it. And so the book that I wrote after Addie was called Gallant. And it was a standalone novel and it was very weird and very dark and very short. And it was my first all ages read and I shouldn't have been able to do any of it. But because Addie had been so successful I asked my publisher for that book if I could do the things I wanted to do. And they said, if it has your name on the cover, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Wow. And I thought, if that's what Addie gives me, I don't ever want to squander it. And so I think the only way I have found to make peace with success and failure, because I've had both, I'm a very spite-driven person. And I had a lot of failure at the beginning of my career that has turned to a lot of spite that has really fortified me many, many times. I love, I love proving people wrong. But I kind of think that what Addie gave me was a necessary understanding that in order to continue to succeed, I was going to have to make sure that I was never writing apples to apples. Mm. And so this is a thing which I have held for the years before Addie has come out, my books tend to have very little in common, yeah. but I now feel even stronger about it because I really want everyone to see my books, each one as a different opportunity. And that can be frustrating for some readers who are like, I love this thing. Give me more of this thing. And it's like, well, I can point you to other authors that yeah. Yeah. will give you that thing. But my, my readers, when they follow me, they do so understanding that each book is its own kind of quest, its own adventure, and that they're going with me. And so what I've done then, in addition to that, is decide I'm just going to take bigger and bigger and bigger swings. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do as weird as I want, as mm -hmm. dark as I want, as strange as I want. Because if if that's not the gift that success has given me, if that's not the freedom and the liberation, then what's the point? Right. Why yeah. play safe once you're given success. Yeah. Exactly. And do you think that reckoning that it took you to write Addie yeah. 
helps that, right? You had to already let go of not wanting wanting it to be perfect and not do you want it to just be real and out there or do you want it to be exactly. perfect in your head? And so you already had that kind of practice. I mean, I don't that. want to pretend like, look, I the first big thing that I sat down to write after Addie's success was the next installment of this big fantasy series that I write, this book called The Fragile Threads of Power. Mm. I brought all of my neuroses from Addie into that book. What happened was I sat down to write, what would this be, this 800-page fantasy novel? And if every single word of that first draft wasn't perfect, I beat myself up for days. Mm. I, I was, it was paralytic. Yeah. It was awful. It was, an, it was an unhappy journey because I thought now the, the pressure is so high. Yeah. And I, it took the writing of that book to realize this is not fun anymore. And so when I started my next standalone novel, the book that I hope will sit next to Addie in that kind of space of the shelf and that, that spiritual sibling, I thought I'm going to be imperfect on purpose. Yeah. Like I'm just gonna, like yeah. I can fix it later. And so I'm, I'm making a more conscious effort. Yeah, but to you're, be liberated. But you're doing it. Yeah. And so many people would <laughs> just say, Thank you. I'm exactly. done you know, no. dust off <laughs> I their can't hands. Do it. I like writing too much. I think honestly, yeah. the success of Addie would have bought me a few years if I just said I can't write for five years, I need to take a break, that'd be yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. I'd go mad. Right. The yeah. fact of the matter you. is yeah. publishing yeah. drives me publishing and I hate each other because it's such a weird <laughs> industry. But I cannot not write. It's yeah. like yeah. I try. I have tried to quit so many times, and <laughs> then hard to quit. five or six days later, I just like start. I start. My knee starts bouncing. Like oh, yes. my fingers start mm-hmm. itching. Like oh, I nice. need to do something at all times. I was like, I, I get so annoyed when I can't do it. I, was, like, I, I just, start snapping at my family. Exactly. I become a not happy person. No. I feel, and I know part of that is that we, this is an industry which tells you if you're not working, you're worthless. I get that. But part of it is just me. But you could get just, a job. You could get yeah, a, like, yeah, It's not, yeah. it's the writing, it's the processing, it's the, it's the outlet. making. Yes. The creativity. It's the creating. Like, yeah. and, and not just that, it's the act of writing something that you then like. Mm. It's the mm-hmm. act of being like, the. I don't realize how stressed out I get until I have a good writing day that maybe only an hour or two hours and I walk away to do the rest of my day and I feel 50 pounds lighter. Yes, yes. Like, it, I, so like the really morbid analogy that I always use is like bloodletting. Mm. Oh, wow. Like I just yeah. feel like, I, I feel like something has to come out. Yes. Like I feel bottled up. Yeah. And I, I try and incorporate a lot of exercise so that when I don't have those good writing days, I still have an outlet yeah. <laughs> to like burn off maybe. something. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, I think I just need it. So because I need writing, then it becomes a, okay, so how am I going to revise or understand my relationship to the industry? Now, of course, mm-hmm. my neuroses is like, the moment you stop writing, everyone will forget you. Goodbye. Like, right. that's, yes. I really, it's a very black and white thinker. <laughs> But, but yeah, I think the only way I've really made peace with it is just raw ambition and said, okay, so I'm never going to write Addie again and I'm never going to try. What am I going to do next? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, this, I'm pulling this, out this my is, astrology book. Oh, I'm yes. Dying this is to know really going nicely some more into. Of, yeah. <laughs> yes. Kate, why don't you go? I'm going to flip some pages. Yes, definitely. Oh. So we, we, I, have a very, very strong interest in astrology on here. Mm-hmm. We always ask our authors, what's their sign and do they relate? Yes. We are very into the tarot. You've already mentioned that. So always where we honestly, mm-hmm. you've mentioned being a control freak, a perfectionist, you're speaking our language. So we yes. use these things to kind of loosen our grip oh, on 
on the control and be- and mm-hmm. to believe that there's sort of greater forces at play. We know you're a cancer. I was going to say, right? I am a cancer, sun, oh, Scorpio, yes. moon, oh, and Aquarius rising. Oh, oh my gosh. God. That is yeah. so perfect for you. Yeah. That is Sorry. exactly. That's I was what like, she was that, looking up. <laughs> I literally want to, I'm like, where does she have the Scorpio and where is the Aquarius? Because I moon. hear it all. I hear Scorpio it all. Moon. I, to be honest, if I, I'm shocked I'm not a Scorpio sun. Like yeah. I am yeah. in many ways a cancer, but I am the kind of cancer oh. who I am not demonstrative. Yeah, I really. hold it all on the inside. So yeah. I think that makes people think I'm less like a cancer. I feel everything to a 15. I just, I don't like letting people know that I feel it. Yes. Oh, well, by the way, cancer. all of the cancer peop- uh, writers mm-hmm. that we have on here, it's the same thing. It's yeah. so emotional, but it's all under this. It's be- yeah, exactly. underneath the shell, underneath mm-hmm. the shell, the, the protective your, shell. Your birthday is the same as both of it's July seventh, right? Yes, seven that's seven. Cor- that's Corinne's no, mother and my no, mother. No, my mom's the sixth. No, but yes. Oh, she's but the sixth. Same. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. And you know the that same puts, sign. It's the yes. exact center of Cancer as well. Yes. It's yes. like the most middle you can get. I'm seven seven eighty seven. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Yeah. But this is um, Scorpio Moon is so Scorpio Moon. <laughs> Scorpio. Well, well, that makes yeah. much more sense. The Moon yeah. is really who mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. It's your. It's everything Emotions. you are on the inside. Yeah. So, do these things, any of these? astrology or tarot or anything sort of work into your writing at any point or you write Addie's birthday yeah I mean yeah I tend to like when the birthdays are important not for process you know a lot I know a lot of writers will like kind of do a dive into their characters in this way I I am not that I'm a much Mm -hmm. more gut writer Mm -hmm. like even as a from a craft perspective I refer to like you like all writers have like a story monster that lives behind their sternum and mm. the act of reading as much as possible is feeding that story mm. monster so that you have a more intuitive sense of how narrative works I kind mm-hmm. of work the same way with my characters yes. but I mean tarot is very important to me mm. probably more so than astrology just because it's like more of what I understand but I think what it really comes down to is archetypes I'm deeply interested in archetypes and narrative archetypes as well as human archetypes and thresholds. I studied them a lot in school. My like thesis as an undergraduate was in heroic and villainous and Jungian archetypes. And so I think that I look at tarot as a bit of an extension of a lot of those narrative archetypes. But I also like I don't write to a three act structure. Most of my books will map onto it, but I won't write to it. Like I don't write in any prescriptive way, I'd prefer to keep an intuitive understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as a of cancer course. with a Scorpio moon, yeah, that you have that ability. You have yeah. that flow yeah. in you. Yeah. Oh, and that's thank conscious. You. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Oh, boy. Thank you. So you've mentioned, you know, your what's coming next. I know you have a book coming out in October. What what can you tease for sure. For our listeners about what's coming for you. Well, okay. So first up, so Addie's out in paperback. Yes. Very excited. The Shades of Magic books, which are the first three books in my fantasy series, are all being reissued over the summer in paperback with brand new covers leading up to my new hardcover fantasy release, The Fragile Threads of Power, Mm -hmm. in October. This is set in... This world that I write that basically has four worlds instead of one, each with a different relationship to magic. I like to say that I write fantasy for people who think they don't like fantasy. Mm, mm. I grew up feeling really ostracized by fantasy because it felt like it demanded a toll if you weren't a big enough fan, if you yeah. didn't, you know, know how to read the maps, if you didn't speak a fictional language, all right. of these things, it felt a little bit 
exclusionary. And so I work very hard to write books regardless of the genre where they feel deeply accessible and inviting. Mm -hmm. So I always say that if you want to try fantasy, if you don't think of yourself as a fantasy reader, but you liked Addie, I would remind you that Addie is fantasy. I like to kind of ease people into fantasy. So it's much Mm -hmm. more about the characters. Um, My magic systems tend to be really deeply intuitive and elemental. So again, I want it to be as accessible as possible. I think as a writer, the way I think of it is every step away from reality that we take is a step we're asking the readers to take, and it's a step that we're going to lose somebody. So rather than make sure that I try to keep it like under five steps at all times, make it easy. And then after that, I'm working on my next standalone novel. I can't say the title. I'm not allowed to yet, but I'm hoping it'll sit next to Addie LaRue. And it is about three women over the course of six, 700 years. Mm. And it is, I've been referring to it very lovingly as my toxic lesbian vampires, but it's basically like three interconnected stories about love and abuse and want and hunger and rage. And I think that Addie is the really optimistic version of it. And then what else you end up with as women is hunger and rage, insatiable hunger and insatiable anger. This is, and, uh, you're speaking you're our language. Yeah. Literally, I'm like, and when can you come back to talk? About <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my hope is that that one will be out next year. 2024. Wow. 2024. Yeah. Oh, wow. So much so, to look forward to. I'm really to. excited. <laughs> I know. That is exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Do you, so who knows? Okay. And then I think hopefully the Addie LaRue film is in development right now. And I've read the scripts and they're mm. in, amazing. Oh, so I'm good. hoping, I think we have one more little draft on the script before it goes to casting. And then oh. fingers crossed. Fingers wow. crossed. Knocking I mean, it's so out of, I'm like what I call a popcorn optimist, which means the day I sit down in a movie theater with a bucket of popcorn, it's real. And Yo. before <laughs> that, it's not. So yeah, I'm right. not one of those authors who is just like, my book's becoming a movie. I'm like, my book is on the on the road to it. And there are many little way stations, but we have a very, very talented team. And so I'm excited. That is fantastic. I'll hold hope for it. I'll hold a very cautious hope for it. Yes. Have some Addie-like hope. Defiant (laughs) joy and stubborn stubborn joy. Defiant joy for it. I love that. We always like to close with a question of what you're loving right now. Any books, TV shows, movies, side interests, like anything that you're really into. I have been in the worst reading slump and it's Mm. not because I haven't been reading good things. It's because I was really sick and I was finishing a revision and I couldn't have other voices in my head. Mm. I'm just emerging from that and I'm reading the second book in this series that I absolutely love by an author named Margaret Owen. The first book was called Little Thieves, and the second book, which isn't out yet, but it's what I'm reading now, is called Painted Devils. It's beautiful and lyrical. Again, I'd say a kind of fantasy for those who think they might not like fantasy, but I think it could change your mind. I just finished The Last of Us last night because I was very behind on everything, and I started Succession. because Not like from beginning. I'm up on the new season of Succession. I um, just need to like binge everything all the time. I watched you because Mm. I really loved those books. I think they're such great narration style and Penn Badgley brings it to life very well. I know I'm reading the new the new one that's coming out in April and it's so she's so good with it. Caroline Capnese is just very oh, good at that. Amazing. Yeah. We're talking yeah. to her soon. We're oh, and we talked yes. to Sarah Gamble, who the showrunner for yeah, you. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. She also loves tarot. We 
Oh, yes. I'm not surprised. An Aquarius. She's an Aquarius. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of witchy energy. Witchy. In the yeah. Oh, she's, yeah. 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 I follow, Sarah and I follow each other online and there's definitely a lot of witchy energy there. Yeah. Like, she loves love that. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. This was an absolute delight. Brilliant yeah. and mind blowing. I will listen to this episode oh, multiple yes. times. I'll have to come back on for my toxic lesbian vampire. Oh, we please, love that. Please do. Please but do. death is the two way street. And yeah. I mean, I had an act of a father, caretaker, God complex. Mm -hmm. so many things I've been wrestling with my whole life you've just given me some new vocabulary for next time we're in the same place we will have to get drinks and talk about without a doubt without a doubt and and then we'll have to do it again because I have a book coming out in 2024 and the death thing I can't say anything about it oh my goodness what season do you know the death not being death is I guess Uh, summer 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 oh exciting Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but wait. death not being death is in mm-hmm. that book, and I would have never ever thought about it and connected it to my childhood the way you just yeah. did. So, I, I love I, look it. at that. Thank, yes. Equal parts writing and therapy session is my favorite kind <laughs> right? of talk. Perfect. Oh, same. Perfect. Same. It's like every same. conversation we have. So, yes, <laughs> yes. Kate and I. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. Thank Thanks for so joining so in on much. us. Yes. So the Invisible Life of Addie Larue. Everyone out in paperback it's in now. Paperback. Yes. Yeah. And so Go much more it. to come. Thank you so much.